our last Mingle with Tingle for the year with Laura, Chief Political Correspondent at 7.30, and uh, she'll be joined by Nikki Sava, columnist with The Age and SMH and author of that marvellous book, Bulldoze, Scott Morrison's uh, Fall and Anthony Albanese's Rise. But first, eventful day in politics with uh, uh, Albanese testing positive for COVID for the second time ahead of his uh, final National Cabinet for the year, which is set for Wednesday. Plus, today we've uh, seen the release of not one but two reviews of the 2022 elections, one by Labor themselves and one by the ANU. So, we welcome Laura and we welcome Nikki to the program to help us uh, navigate this complex territory. Uh, before we get into the implications of uh, Elbow's latest bout of COVID, Laura, uh, because it seems only yesterday we were talking about uh, how the Morrison government was managing our supply of rat tests, but there was no shortage of rat baggery. Uh, I, I vividly recall Barnaby Joyce, for example, telling us that uh, Omicron wasn't killing people. It, it's been a long year, hasn't it, Philip? Um, I mean, it, it's only... It's less than 12 months since the whole rat thing was um, sort of obsessing... We were obsessing about it over the summer, the fact we couldn't get rats tests and um, the, the Omicron variant was going bananas and, um, and you know, all the wheels were starting to fall off well and truly uh, from the sort of sense that there was any control over the whole thing. Uh, then, of course, we had... Uh, more climate disasters with the floods and uh, the war in Ukraine. How did that shift, or how did they shift the dial politically, Laura? Um, I think, Philip, that um, you know, whether you look at Nikki's excellent book um, or whether you look at the, um, the Australian election, election study from the ANU, which you've, you've made reference to in your opening remarks, or the ALP review of the campaign, it sort of feels like um, the, uh, the, the path was sort of set by the time we got into the new year. Everything that was happening by then, whether it was natural disasters or sort of problems with COVID, were only reinforcing people's perceptions, which were bad, of Scott Morrison, and which both the election study and the Labor campaign review say was without a doubt the predominant factor in determining the election result. Scott Morrison's I don't hold a hose comment uh, came back to bite him. It certainly did. I, I think somebody should engrave it in gold and uh, stick it above the <laughs> above the Labor National Secretary's desk if they haven't done so already because uh, it really was the thing that just really formed people's judgment about him. Uh, he was regarded um, as untrustworthy um, and uh, sort of vaguely dodgy by the electorate, um, uh, lacking in compassion, honesty and trustworthiness, um, according to the Australian election study, which is sort of a fairly good trifecta. And, of course, ongoing climate change denialism set the stage for the teal phenomenon. Well, now, this is, this is a bit of an interesting thing, uh, Philip. Uh, I think, yes, it did. Uh, but there are a couple of different takes on the teal phenomenon out of the stuff today, which, you know, feeds into the general perception we have of them. I mean, the election study is saying that 
Uh, in fact, the Teal vote came from disaffected, primarily from disaffected Labor and Greens voters. Uh, but one of the, and these aren't sort of necessarily contradictory facts, but one of the things that didn't get a lot of uh, attention today was something that uh, is in the Labor Review, which goes to the way Labor campaigned. And of course, there was a lot of controversy throughout the three-year term about whether Anthony Albanese was being too small a target, whether he was relying too much on Scott Morrison to fall over, whether he should have been doing much. And one of the uh, sort of self-criticisms that the Labor Review makes is that, uh, yes, the strategy was great in terms of focusing on Scott Morrison, but the cost of it was that a lot of voters didn't exactly know what Labor stood for, and as a result, it was much easier for them or alternatively, they felt more comfortable in voting for a teal or an independent candidate. So I think that's a really interesting thing going ahead when there's all this debate about who exactly voted for the teals and why. The other, another ingredient was, of course, of Morrison Dutton insisting that we be tough on China. And that had a, a blowback effect, didn't it, in, uh, particularly in electorates with strong uh, migrant populations? It did, um, and all, all the uh, data suggests that um, Ch Chinese Australians t took great uh, offence at the way uh, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton were talking because it wasn't clear that they were talking about the Chinese Communist Party um, and they felt that they you know, were, were catching not just the rough edge of the, um, of the government's rhetoric but blowback as a result um, in terms of pe the way people perceived them in the community and, it, and, and saw a huge swing... And a, and a sort of a lethal swing away from the coalition and to Labor in that last election. Now, Nikki, the ALP election review uh, released this afternoon said, and I quote, although several factors contributed to the outcome, the unpopularity of Scott Morrison and his government was the most significant. You would... Uh, to wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that's the overwhelming thrust of your splendid new book. <laughs> well, it, it's impossible to um, disagree with that, although I think probably the only person in Australia who would disagree <laughs> with it would be Scott Morrison, I bet. Um, but, um, you know, from the ANU uh, review released today, uh, he was the most unpopular leader uh, to lead a party into an election since they started doing the study in 1987. So um, it's not just me saying it. <laughs> I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's indisputable. You say that there were many factors that contributed to the defeat, the uh, desertion of women, the desertion of Chinese Australians, a yearning for tougher action on climate change. It was multifactorial, wasn't it? Well, well, it was. Um, hanging over it all, though, was Morrison himself and um, everything sort of stemmed uh, from him. If you look at the desertion of women, uh, one of the pivotal moments of um, his decline or the start of his decline was when he bullied Christine Holgate on the floor of the parliament and forced her departure from Australia Post. Now, that was uh, something extraordinary um, that offended uh, 
professional women, but also offended people like Nick Minchin, John Howard, Ron Boswell uh, and others who thought it was extraordinary behaviour on his part. That began, I think, the desertion of women and then it was compounded by his handling of um, the Grace Tame um, ascension to Australian of the Year and then by uh, Brittany Higgins' um, allegations. So, why, why wasn't he rolled before the election, Nikki, when everyone could see the writing on the wall? Um, there, there were a number of reasons. Um, Dutton had already uh, torn down one Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, so he wasn't going to tear down another. And Frydenberg didn't have it in him to challenge a sitting Prime Minister. The only way they believed um, that it would happen would be if um, Ben Morton and Stuart Robert said to him, listen, mate, for the good of the party, for the good of the country, you have to go. Um even then, they don't think he would have gone and nor were Robert and Morton prepared to say it to him. And if they had moved against him and got the numbers to topple him, they were also convinced that he would bring the whole show down because he was such a vindictive um, person. You've already mentioned in dispatches, uh, uh, Tim Tim mentions a cousin, Nick mentioned. You, <laughs> you spoke to this dyed-in-the-wall conservative uh, for the book and he said one of the upsides of the campaign was that the demonstrated rampant pork barrelling is not going to give or not going to save a dying government. Yes, I thought that was um, quite interesting um, from uh, Tim's um, cousin. Um, he's um, pretty good with words too, I think. <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, look, he was making a point about how um, the entire focus of the campaign was Morrison, right? There was no policy out there. Um, all they tried to do was buy off people in critical seats through pork barrelling, you know, as, as Nick said, you know, trying to fix every basketball court or every car park um, around the country. And that just didn't work um, because the whole focus was still on Morrison. I can't resist reading something you've written. Morrison was the worst Prime Minister I have covered and I've been writing about all of them <laughs> since Gough Whitlam. He simply wasn't up to the job. Mm. And yes. yet he wanted to be up to all the jobs, didn't he, with the, <laughs> with, with the secret ministries? Yes, well, he didn't trust anybody else um, to do the job that he couldn't do or to do any of the jobs that he couldn't do. Um, it was... Um, I, I have to say, you know, uh, I thought um, after his uh, speech in Parliament um, last week responding to the censure motion, I did say to a couple of people, I think I was too soft on him in the book. <laughs> because <laughs> because he just, you know, refused to accept any responsibility for anything or show any contrition or apologise 
So, so not only could he not read a room, he could never, he couldn't read himself. He can't see himself, can he? No, um, he can't. And I, I thought one of the other um, interesting things was from Fran Bailey, who was who woke up to him very early in the piece and was one of the first to sack him um, when she said that he was born without an empathy gene, um, also a self-awareness gene, I think. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he was a, a very... He was a complex character and a very strange character. There's Nikki pulling punches, so back to you, Laura. <laughs> uh, Laura, Elbow. Elbow set a different tone for leadership from the start with his uh, election night speech foregrounding the Uluru Statement. He did. Uh, if you think about it, Philip, we're, we're finishing the year talking about subjects that we just weren't talking about seriously at the beginning of the year. We've had industrial relations reform. We've got an anti-corruption commission. Um, the voice uh, debate is front and centre. It's contentious, but we're talking about it seriously and the government's mm. going to take it seriously. And I think also, and I, I think I've made this point before, but I think it's so interesting and important, there's this shift in the way our government is talking to us. Um, we don't get the daily... You know, you know, and it's a pack of bananas and some steak knives, you know, announcements which never see the light of day again. <clears throat> we, uh, we get the Prime Minister and notably his ministers coming out and talking about stuff and saying, well, we're still thinking about this, we're working on it, we're, you know, we're not quite sure what we're going to do yet, um, we, we're going to leave this idea out there for people to, to discuss and I think it's a really profound change in the way, you know, politics is being conducted. Um, you know, it's never, it, it's not, it's not pearl pure heart. I mean, the, the Prime Minister is still prepared to be completely politically uh, lethal and pragmatic when he wants to, but it's not all driven just by politics. There's actually some substance there. Poignant comment he made that people have always underestimated me. I think that's entirely true. I was certainly one of them that did. And look at the polls today. His, his honeymoon period seems endless. Mm, it's, it's sort of, it feels like it's still building a little bit, Philip. I mean, it's, it's not... It's not fallen off a cliff yet uh, and um, <clears throat> because people started with low expectations, a lot of people are sort of have been looking at him since he won the election and saying, oh, actually, he's okay, you know. Um, they, don't, they didn't have big expectations um, and so he can only improve on that in a way. Nikki, back to The Voice. You note in the book that Dutton was open to supporting The Voice to Parliament but, of course, it offends those to the right of his party. Uh, well, it does, and uh, uh, particularly with uh, Senator uh, Price from uh, the Northern Territory, um, her speech that day began to close off, I think, uh, Dutton's options or make his options uh, that much harder. And, you know, there's bit of, been a bit of a masking of uh, the problems, really, that confront the coalition. Um, they're all saying, oh, isn't it great? We've stayed united for six months. Well, uh, underneath that, I think there are all sorts of uh, simmering tensions about which way the party should go, 
not just on the voice, but on on things like climate change still. They don't have that position resolved yet. So uh, I think, um, you know, it's going to be hard for him to keep uh, Liberals in line. He On the voice, uh, they can't, um, I don't think they can afford to take a position against it if they want to you know, restore some of the, the votes from um, seats like Kuyong and um, also Benelong and Reid, you know. Um, it's you not you just... remind us that Dutton refused to support the, the apology to the stolen generation back in 2008, but he later accepted that he'd made a serious error. He did. Um, uh, he did make a serious mistake and he did apologise for it. Um, so we wait and see whether he has learnt his lesson uh, from that. Laura, one of the first things Albo had to do was uh, was set about restoring some of our um, international reputation. How's he performed on the global stage? Well, I think um, Penny Wong and he have both performed pretty well on the global stage, uh, Philip. I mean, Doc sort of uh, exemplified by the fact that he actually got to uh, have a however many minute meeting it was with uh, the Chinese uh, president and also, also spoke to the Chinese prime minister. Um, there's been a really big recalibration going on there, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia and uh, the Pacific, which is much less bellicose, um, which is not sort of running around demanding people all take sides on things. Um, and I think that's all st- stood us in good stead. Um, I think there's a lot of work to do to really sort of, you know, work out exactly whereabouts on the sort of scale of middle power diplomacy um, Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong want us to land. Um, you know, we, we seem to, that, that idea of using our status as, as a middle power, as a, as a positive, um, sort of disappeared over the last 10 years. And uh, I think my sense is that they're floundering around trying to get back to that, but exactly, you know, where it sits on the pendulum is a bit unclear at this stage. Well, beloved listeners, we just said two for the price of one, our final ling, mingle with tingle with Laura. Laura, thanks for everything you've done for the program and for journalism over the last 12 months. And thank you to Nikki. Nikki Sava, columnist for the, uh, the Age and the SMH and author of Bulldozer, Scott Morrison's Fall and Anthony Albanese's Rise, published by Scribe. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.